This is The Leap. I'm Judy Campbell. And in this episode, two stories about the power of unlikely friendships. Sometimes we build connections we never could have imagined. And those connections, they leave a mark. First, here's writer Chris Cullen with the story of an unusual man he met a decade ago. Some years back, in a different era of my life, I rented a dark, stained little office in San Francisco's Mission District. It was on the second floor of a warehouse that had been carved up into individual workstations. I'm a writer, and I think there was another writer somewhere in the building, but more and more of the people moving in were part of this new wave of well-paid professionals sweeping into the city, entrepreneurs and developers and the like. As it happened, I needed to move out that winter. It was late November when I placed an ad on Craigslist, looking for someone to finish my last three months. The man who answered the ad was about 140 years old and arrived two hours late at the door of the warehouse on a child's wooden scooter. He wore a tattered old raincoat and carried a duffel bag that only later would I realize had been suspiciously full. His bald head gleamed. His eyebrows and his beard were dyed purple, and his teeth overlapped one another in these incredible diagonals. He hadn't walked five feet into the building before he launched into a story about the physicist Niels Bohr. Bohr sassed back to Einstein, he said. He did. And when you pass that shoeshine boy on 22nd Street, you think of the way it might be different in a Chinese watercolor. And those watercolors, well, you know how sometimes you throw a so-called road apple up at a tree, a crab apple tree? Randy's monologue lasted half an hour, from the foyer on up the little stairway and through my tour of the warehouse. It was the kind that's just lucid enough you try to follow it. Well, you throw one road apple, he continued, and then you throw another, but nothing happens. But why would it? And that's my point, with the men up there on mountaintops. But I'm not on a mountaintop. I'm down here in the shifting sands. I finally led him up to my little office. I started to apologize over how unfancy it was, but his jaw dropped. It really did, just like Howdy Doody. He loved it. Randy wasn't dirty, and he didn't smell, but he gave off the unmistakable vibe of near homelessness. He was also sweet-natured and intelligent, even if sometimes he didn't make much sense. He told me he was a writer, too, and would be using the office to write up a business scheme. I had that distinct sensation of knowing a person will soon be sleeping on your office couch. But so what? I needed to sublet the space, and if I turned him away, he was that much closer to actually being homeless. I found myself working up a defense of Randy, silently standing there in my office. Eccentricity is not a crime. On the contrary, it's in short supply in our decreasingly bohemian city. Randy handed me two months' rent, and I gave him the key. The phone calls came immediately. The other workers in the warehouse didn't like Randy's style. Where did I find him again? Was he crazy? He talked so much, even when their headphones were on. Might he steal from them? And what was with the exotic fish in mayonnaise jars, or the orchids he left all around the common area? Reassuring them became my job. Randy was kooky, but he wasn't going to do anything bad. By this point, I'd logged a few days with him, helping him move in and get situated, get to know the neighborhood. Turns out he wasn't 140, but he'd lived a long and varied life, 
mostly of extravagant and aborted dreams. After working on a pipeline in Alaska, he'd spent the next year devising an indoor simulated beach resort there in the snow. He'd had it planned down to the table settings. Then there was his salmon project. He got hold of several dozen young ones and raised them in gold-colored tanks. When he released them up along the west coast, he explained, they were going to instinctively lead him to actual gold. Then there were the Thailand years. He went there to get all his organs replaced with younger ones. Then he decided Thailand needed a hot dog hut. That idea morphed into fish. He was going to build the world's first million-gallon aquarium. Randy conceded that none of these schemes ever materialized. But he wasn't phased. On the contrary, he might have been the happiest man I'd ever met. I'm sure that's partly why I was drawn to him. But it was also his straight-up, highly productive weirdness. He had weird new ideas every day, and whenever I came around, which seemed to be happening a lot, he'd pat my arm and laugh with his crazy teeth everywhere and offer me a spot on his board of directors, which didn't exist. I had my doubts about Randy. It did suck to get trapped in one of his endless monologues. But hearing my fellow office workers complain about him convinced me that I had to defend him. The complaints kept coming. Randy was weirdly spilling water everywhere. Randy was talking about his swollen testicles. He told me no one there would even talk to him. I took up his freak flag, worked myself into a self-righteous sermonizing lather. Hadn't we all moved to San Francisco precisely because of its tolerance for outsiders? What becomes of these eccentrics if they're pushed further and further to the margins? After a couple months, it was getting harder to prop him up. Someone was forgetting to turn the office alarm on at night. Guess who they suspected? I visited Randy to strategize. By now, the office was a hovel, with open jars of jelly and assorted medications strewn over the carpeting. I pretended not to notice a mouse dart under my couch. But Randy didn't want to strategize. He wanted to show me the tie he'd found at a dollar store. He held it up, pleased with its beauty, pleased that the universe had created such things, and then it slipped out of his hands. I watched him bend down to retrieve it, but then come back up with a wool hat. Did you know I'm thinking of raising a Malaysian raven, capable of distinguishing a man in a hat from a man without a hat? He asked. He seemed more discombobulated than usual, but on the way out, his mental chaos seemed to calm for a moment. He took me by the elbow and spoke with an unusual clarity. He said, you've always shown me great friendship. The final call came a few days later. One of the young people at the warehouse had discovered Randy lying on the floor, shirtless and moaning. The office mate had been annoyed to have to wait while Randy found a ride to the doctor. We were voting him off the island, the office manager informed me tartly. I emailed Randy, he did have a computer, and left a message on his voicemail. I'd failed. I could have fought more, gotten more involved with his life. Maybe if I'd cleaned his office for him, it would have jump-started a bigger change. I suspected Randy was having some version of these thoughts, too, because a week passed with no reply. It was on a Sunday night that I got the news. Not mentioned in any of Randy's monologues, or his hepatitis, or his HIV-positive status, or the growing infection in his leg. Randy had died alone at the hospital a week earlier. 
the only thing in his pockets was my business card. If you don't mind, I'm going to fast forward at this point. If you've ever learned that you were the sole lifeline to a strange, gentle old man who died alone with nobody to hold his hand, you probably know what those first two weeks felt like. I'd let Randy down. If there was any consolation, it's that my idiotic indignation had now ratcheted up to DEFCON 1. Rather than accept Randy, the other workers at the warehouse had complained and rejected him, and now look. It was like some after-school special I couldn't quite put my finger on, but I knew there was a moral in there somewhere. And I pedaled over one last time to tidy the office and deliver an award-winning guilt trip. But of course you can't really change the way people feel. I'm pretty sure that only happens in movies. When I told folks what happened, nobody fainted in horror or wept with regret or dropped out of society to recalibrate their ethical compass. They just said wow, and they looked off in the distance for a few moments, and then eventually they got back to work. As I write this, it's been almost 11 years since my last conversation with Randy. It's been eight years since the orchid he gave me finally died. I don't think about him much anymore. I work at a different office now, and I have kids, and I can't remember the last time I posted anything on Craigslist. When I think about those co-workers, my main thought is I hope they forgive me for being a pain in the ass. I was young. But that's the thing, that's what stands out to me all these years later. We were all younger, and had the good fortune of living in a city that for one last gasp that year was also young. It's not that young people no longer live here, zillions do. But San Francisco's youthful spirit, its irreverence and temerity and grit and artiness, have been traded for more grown-up concerns. Making money, advancing the career, Instagramming kimchi tacos. It's not just San Francisco, of course. Cities all around the country have undergone similar transformations. Getting to know Randy for just a short little while strikes me as the last of a mini-era, when it was still possible for a quasi-homeless, non-millennial, non-entrepreneur to find his way into a co-working space in the heart of the Mission District. It was one of those things you only realized later was about to vanish, like your last landline, the last time you held your kid's hand crossing the street, your last conversation with someone you'll never see again. The more complicated truth is that I've changed, too. My office is now neither dark nor stained. I drive a reliable grown-up car and at the end of the day go home to my normal grown-up house. I have little access to the strangeness you rub up against as a young person in a strange, youthful city. How much of that is because the strangeness was driven out? How much is because I've been a little gentrified myself? I wonder what I'd do if I met Randy now. Would I come down on the side of the irritated co-workers, annoyed to have him in my midst? My tolerance for open jars of jelly has admittedly waned over the years. My interest in swollen testicles diminished. But I still like a purple beard. And I still have days when the mood is just right, where given the chance, I'd trade all my middle-aged comforts for a Malaysian raven, capable of distinguishing a man in a hat from a man without a hat.
That story was by Chris Collin, who also composed and performed the music. We're taking a short break. We'll be back with our second story, A Journey to the Amazon with a Fish Named Harold. Welcome back to The Leap. This episode is about the power of unlikely friendships. Our next story, Finding Harold, is from writer and science historian Laurel Breitman. I met Harold the year I turned 13. It was 1990, and I was in seventh grade at a big public middle school in Southern California, where the cool girls stole cubic zirconia studs from Claire's at the mall, compared hickeys, and occasionally joined gangs. Once, I accidentally interrupted a fight in the bathroom. A bunch of girls were jumping in a new member, pulling her hair and hitting her up against a stall. Bubbles, who was built like a refrigerator with crunchy bangs and a shiny L.A. Raiders jacket, saw me, threatened to kill me, and I never peed at lunch again. I was chubby, and I was really into Anne of Green Gables, donkeys, and painting watercolor sunsets. That's to say, I was not in a gang at least until I met Harold. It was my dad's fault. He took me to the aquarium store after I said I was interested in raising fish. We'd stocked a tiny fountain in front of our house with koi, and then a few bug-eyed black goldfish that looked like cartoon villains. All of them died almost immediately, by raccoon or bird beak or invisible plague that sent them all cloudy-eyed, mouth-scaping to the surface. Undaunted, I wanted to keep trying. My dad wasn't big on saying no to me. He was dying. He had bone cancer, and it metastasized. Tumors all over his body that he'd go after with chemo, radiation, or surgery when they lit up on his regular scans. But he knew, I knew, my younger brother and my mom knew, that there was a pretty good chance his death was going to be as untimely as the fountain fish. You sure about that one? He asked me at the pet store. I was standing in front of a tank of brown, hard-bodied, armored catfish. I'd sailed by the colorful clown loaches, the graceful black and yellow angelfish, and stopped short right in front of these drab creatures suckered quietly up against the glass walls of their tank. I like their whiskers, I said. These catfish could almost pass for tiny aquatic dogs. Our salesmen said they were excellent cleaners, too, that they eat algae and keep the water really clean. Harold came home with me in a plastic bag and moved into the new freshwater tank I set up across from my bed. After a few months, he was my closest friend in junior high. I told him about my crush on Glenn Dudley, a lanky golden retrievery boy who only had eyes for my friend Susie. I told him detailed plans for my donkey theme bat mitzvah, the party I was convinced would finally make me popular. And sometimes I even told him about my dad, how scared I was that he could die soon, how mad I was that even though I was memorizing my stupid Hebrew prayers, no bearded sky god seemed interested in saving him. I bided my time, perched on the bleachers of my life, watching everyone else take the field, while I counted my stomach rolls, rearranged my scrunch socks, and my denim shorts with the ruffled hems that I begged for at wet seal, all while watching everyone else have their first kisses at golf and stuff, or inside the rink at Skating Plus to pump up the jam. I couldn't wait to turn into someone else. Harold died halfway through eighth grade. 
I buried him outside under an oak tree, adjacent to the hamster graveyard, and solemnly thanked him for his years of service as I lowered his box into a dirt hole. Eventually, I got to college, where things were really looking up. It was finally cool, or maybe not cool exactly, but at least not ostracizing, to love reading. Within weeks, I made out with a guy at a sticky-floored frat party and told no one it was my first kiss. And I had a job I loved, working in the Cornell University fish collection. It was a squat building out by the airport, where the chief curator brought his Airedale to work. I spent a lot of time topping off cloudy specimen jars with formaldehyde trying not to splash too much of the cloying pink stuff onto myself and my shoes. The best part of my job, though, was unpacking samples sent in by professors doing fieldwork around the world. One day, I came in to find a big cardboard box from Venezuela, sent by an ecology professor named Alex Flecker. These boxes were surprises, like fish Christmas. I never knew would be inside. I started unwrapping, removing the padding and a few random plant samples till I got to what I wanted the final mummy layer of preservative-soaked gauze around the fish. As I unwrapped, I started to notice something familiar. Wait, was it? Could it be Harold? It was. And not only that, but underneath him were at least a half dozen more. Honestly, up until that moment, I figured he'd been born in a pet store in California somewhere. Apparently not. Harold had a family. He had a homeland. I asked my boss where exactly this professor worked. The Andean foothills, he said. I pictured rolling hills dotted with fuzzy alpacas and a river full of whiskered catfish. Somewhere in what little I knew of South America, there was a whole world of heralds. A few weeks later, a paper sign appeared on the main door. Field assistant wanted, travel expenses plus salary, tropical biology research, Venezuela. Contact Dr. Alexander Flecker. And so, a few months later, I got off a plane in Caracas. My mom was hoping I'd do a study abroad program in Italy or beg for a Eurail pass. Instead, I called her before getting on a bus to Barinas at the edge of a tropical wilderness, telling her I'd talk to her again in a few months when the dry season ended. Professor Flecker's field station was next to a wide riverbed surrounded by thick forest. I set up my tent underneath towering trees, and at night, howler monkeys passed through, howling so close to me it sounded like people pretending to be howler monkeys, or jet engines. The first few days, I was so bitten by black flies, I got an allergic reaction that made my legs swell to two times their normal size. Another field assistant and I processed water samples in our office, which was an empty swimming pool that crawled with small scorpions. They didn't bother us. The only thing that did was foot fungus because eventually we got out of the swimming pool and started working in the river, where the heralds were, under almost every rock, every downed underwater log and branch. We walked up and down the river, taking water, algae, and insect samples, counting fish, and noting tiny differences in habitat, all to figure out the role that heralds played in the ecosystem. It turned out the thousands of them, leaving kiss-lip marks all over the rocks, were really good nutrient cyclers. When it was time to go home, I didn't leave. By then, I'd recovered from the black flies, gotten used to the foot fungus, and beaten an anal worm infection so insanely itchy that it woke me up at night. It wasn't until I got an allergic reaction to my anti-malarial medication, with chest pains and fevers so bad that I thought it was malaria, that I came home. But I only stayed long enough to rustle up some grant money to go back again. This time, further south to the Amazon. There, I'd heard heralds could grow to the size of small dogs. I wanted to see this. 
Here was my plan. I'd spend the next two years following the path of aquarium fish like him and the others I'd had in junior high, from where they were born and caught, all the way to where they ended up, in pet stores in the United States. I wasn't sure how I'd do it, but I knew I had to start where they did, in the Amazon. Right around the time my dad took me to the aquarium store for Harold, he'd gotten worried about the geography education my brother and I were not getting in school. I think what prompted it was my brother asking what an Indonesia was. In any case, the next day at dinner there was a colored globe sitting in the middle of the oak table, an American state placemats, and a big, heavy atlas that my mom set down with a thump between our bowls of cantaloupe and cottage cheese. This, she said, pointing to a languid blue snake winding through the center of South America, is the biggest river in the world. They didn't stop there. One Saturday morning, I walked into the kitchen with a friend who happened to be spending the night and, horrifyingly, saw my mom and dad half-naked in loose purple and yellow sarongs. My mom, a cut gardenia from the yard behind her ear, was sautéing fish for breakfast, setting the done pieces on a plate lined with banana leaves. My dad saw me and his hairy chest started to ripple with laughter. Welcome to breakfast of the world, he said. My mom offered us some fish. You're in the Pacific Islands now. When it was over, I'd go back to my room and swear to Harold that someday, I'd go to places like Fiji or Brazil, make friends with an ocelot, and show everyone in junior high that they missed out by not kissing me in Stacey Hebert's basement. Now, here I was, in the middle of the Peruvian Amazon. Big Harold country. Eventually, I befriended an aquarium fish exporter named Yeezbear, who helped me secure passage on a boat heading upriver. From there, I hoped to go out in canoes with indigenous fishermen while they scooped up hundreds of jewel-colored fish from flooded forest streams and kept them alive in the bottom of their boats, the fish floating in a few inches of river water under their feet. I paid for hammock space on deck, slung between two other people bound for their villages, and Yeezbear made me promise I'd sleep with my tevas in my hammock so no one would steal them during the night. Finally, I thought to myself, I'll be in the real Amazon. After dark, the skyline lit up with flashes of lightning. You could see the storms approaching over the forest from what seemed like hundreds of miles away. When it got to us, it was slanting rain sideways onto the hammocks. And then after that, bugs, flying beetles the size of my palms, hit the bare bulbs on the ceiling of the boat and fell, momentarily stunned, into my hammock. When I closed my eyes, I could see the globe at home on the kitchen table. I could feel the bumps of the Andes and the long, smooth line of the Amazon under my fingertips. Would I really be able to follow these fish through two hemispheres and even more time zones? Would anyone trust me enough to tell me their stories, to let me keep getting on their boats? Would I have enough money? Would anyone even believe me when I got back? When would I be grown up enough to feel like I could really do this? When I was eight years old, I wrote a letter to myself at 16. I wanted to make sure that 16-year-old Laurel wouldn't forget her younger self, even though by now she hopefully looked exactly like Elizabeth Shue in Adventures in Babysitting, had her period, and was driving around town in a Mustang convertible, blaring the lady in red over the car speakers. Dear 16, I wrote, are you famous? Is your favorite food still pizza? Is Hamlet the hamster still alive? It felt impossible to me that older Laurel could still be the same person, with the same memories, fears, and anxieties. Only with more added on top, 
like some sort of emotional layer cake. Back on the boat, the rain drummed, the bugs hissed, and water soaked all the way through to my skin. The real Amazon, it seemed, was just like the real anywhere else, only different. And so was I. That's when I realized that the new, improved, older Laurel was never going to show up. This was it. It wasn't a scary feeling, at least not right then. It was just a realization. It was only ever going to be me. Apparently, it always had been. I thought about my dad. I was halfway through my senior year of high school when he died. By then, his scarred body looked a lot like the topographic map of northern South America. The multi-page spreads and the atlas he pulled out at Breakfast of the World. I didn't get to say goodbye, even though we'd known the end was coming for a while. I didn't cry in public, not once. Not even while reading the poem I'd written for him at his memorial service. It was about fish, about rivers. The two big loves of his life he'd passed straight down to me. Wet in my hammock in the storm, I couldn't have told you that I'd gone to the Amazon looking for him. Or for a version of me that didn't need a dad anymore. But now I know that's exactly what I was doing. When I came back, lots of people told me how brave I was. But I knew the truth. Sometimes what looks like bravery is just us being scared of something else even more. In my case, I was scared of staying home. Of being the kind of kid who could let herself feel a sucking vacuum where her dad used to be. I wouldn't realize all this for a long, long time, but that's okay. Someone told me once that we only have epiphanies about ourselves and our lives when we have the skills to be able to cope with them. And I definitely didn't, not then. But luckily, my parents showed me a map, and I had Harold to lead me, the world's most disinterested emotional support animal, while I tried to figure it out. Only it wasn't just him. It was thousands of him, swimming through the dark water just below the boat, listening. That's The Leap. That story was from Laurel Breitman. She's the writer-in-residence at the Medicine and the Muse program at Stanford University. She's currently writing a book about medicine, family, and mortality. The music was by Seth Samuel and Nick Naoti. Nathan Campbell wrote and performed the song you're about to hear. Our engineers were Katie McMurrin and Jim Bennett. The Leap is produced by me, Judy Campbell. Bianca Taylor is the assistant producer. Deb George is the editor. The executive producer is Joanne Wallace. You can find all the episodes of The Leap on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and consider leaving a comment. Thanks for listening. Leaping lizards, is that really me? I wasn't born to fly, Lord, Lord, I was born to creep. Circle your buzzers over the yawning deep. I bet all I got against your lot that I'm gonna make the leap. I'm gonna make the leap. I'm gonna make the leap.